0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, our focus is the recent vote by the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. We will talk with University of Chicago Law Professor Tom Ginsburg about the pros and cons of direct democracy, which the United Kingdom used in order to leave the EU. And after that, we will discuss what potentially leaving the EU means for globalization with Dr. Robert Scott from the Economic Policy Institute. That's next on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. What did the United Kingdom's recent vote to leave the European Union really mean? Was it evidence of a new wave of populism sweeping the globe, at least among developed countries? Or was it simply a case of navigating without a compass? And what does it say that the mechanism by which this momentous decision was arrived was not through a legislative body, but rather through direct democracy? In other words, the vote reflected the will of the people. To discuss direct democracy, not only as it relates to the recent vote in the U.K., but also its application in the United States is Dr. Tom Ginsburg. Ginsburg is an international law professor at the University of Chicago. Professor Ginsburg, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's begin. You, you opened your recent piece in The Huffington Post by referencing Federalist 63, where Madison offers that the defining principle of democracy as compared to Athenian democracy uh, lies, quote, in the total exclusion of the people in their collective capacity. Now, taking it at face value, I could see how some might conclude such musings were elitist. What were you saying when, when you when you opened that uh, in that in that manner?
1: Well, I think that's that's right. That is, Madison was afraid, as many of the founding fathers were, of you know, sort of. Uh, uh, the dangers of populism, and that's been an enduring theme in democratic theory. We know that the people are supposed to rule in democracy. That's what it means. Uh, But we also know that uh, the people's preferences are, you know, best channeled through some kind of system of representation. And of course, there's endless debates in political theory on the right way to design a particular system. Um, Madison was clearly in favor of direct representation and I mean, of, of representation by, uh, you know, mediating forces. And um, he thought this would actually serve the people's interest better.
0: Why don't, before we go any further, why don't you just give us a quick policy one-on-one course on describing the difference between representative democracy and direct democracy? Because during our conversation, we're going to be interchanging those two. So if you don't mind. Sure.
1: Right. So the idea of representative democracy is that the people um, elect representatives and those representatives – make decisions uh, in between elections, and they're accountable to the people periodically at election time. And uh, this is usually seen as having the merits of getting a set of people who are sort of repeat players in dealing with governmental issues. They're not, um, you know, they're, they see the inner workings of government. They're in the position where they have to make tough trade offs with regard to the budget as to, you know, what we're going to fund, what we're not going to fund, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. And they become experts in governing. And uh, that's usually seen as having a good deal of advantages. Now, every once in a while, though, there is a danger um, that emerges, and that's, you know, appearances of the corruption of the uh, representatives, and that's led periodically throughout history to countervailing pressures for more direct democracy, where the people themselves would have a direct voice in making laws. Now, we see this in our own system in many American states, which during the progressive era... In the early part of the 20th century, because precisely because of fears of the corruption of the legislators, uh, took steps to create direct democracy—the ability of the people to directly make law, either through referenda or initiatives, as we have out here in California, uh, and um, you know, or some other mechanisms such as judicial recall elections, electing judges. So it's a kind of a pendulum, I guess, in our history where we go back and forth recognizing that we need representation, but every once in a while sort of lashing out and saying, wait a minute, representatives, it's gotten out of control. We don't trust them anymore, and we need more direct democracy.
0: Now, uh, given given that uh, brief lesson, and now going back to your your previous response when you were, ref- when we were referencing Adams, I mean, excuse me, Madison, um, apply that, that Madison critique on the recent vote to, in the U.K. to leave the European Union, if you would.
1: Right. So I think uh, if Madison was alive today, he would say that this is just the kind of thing he had in mind when he was saying that direct democracy poses dangers. Um, you know, that the idea is that he thinks that, uh, you know, democracy, the people are best served by having experts in government make the choices. Now, in this case, of course, the, rep- the those in the governing party uh, are the ones who kick the question to the people. And that's one of the, my abiding concerns about de- direct democracy, that when it's available, the representatives will be tempted to shirk the tough decisions and to punt them to the people directly. And the people aren't really in a good position to make all the uh, all the trade-offs. As I mentioned in that piece, you know, you have many voters in England who woke up the next day and said, wait a minute, yeah, we wanted to leave the European Union, but we didn't want to lose our European subsidies.
0: Right. We didn't want
1: to lose access to the market. And that's precisely, I think, um, the danger... Of uh, direct democracy, which is that the people can be manipulated; they can not really have a clear understanding of the costs and benefits of their choices, and um, that politicians will seek to exploit that. Pol- populist politicians, such as Boris Johnson and such over there,
0: or just Boris, as he's known in the UK, right? Just Boris. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, the man with the, the the British guy with Donald Trump's hair.
0: Right. <laughs> um. You know, one of the things that seems to me, uh, just just in um, direct democracy and um, us both having uh, uh, lived in California, that what we've seen the direct democracy played out, and um, I guess I was wondering, you, you know, the, all legislation, even in representative democracy, comes with the potential of um, unintended consequences. Right. It seems to me, and uh, with direct democracy, that becomes uh, even even a, even greater possibility. They cannot be um, uh, resolved easily.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So um, again, I think with the California experience, most people who study it closely, um, you know, recognize that it might have had some good sort of motivations at the beginning, but have also emphasized some of the dangers. So. I remember when I was younger, there was a year we had four different ballot initiatives, which all related to auto insurance. Right. And they were completely contradictory if we passed them all, and I think we did. Um, and that, of course, led that it meant that uh, the question got kicked to the courts, which isn't a particularly Democratic uh, body trying to resolve what the people meant in these multiple different competing initiatives. So there's a real danger of manipulation. A lot of times these initiatives are put on the ballot by interest groups, and, um, I was just looking in the fall. Californians are going to be asked to vote on 18 different initiatives, one of which is uh, overturning a state law banning plastic bags and grocery stores. That's sponsored by the American Progressive Bag Alliance, which is a plastic bag producing <laughs> industry organization. Uh, another question the voters are going to have to consider is, are uh, actors in pornographic films going to uh, require to be used condoms during filming? Uh, so these are kind of things which get put on the ballot in California. And, um, you know, I think it's—these are you know, kinds of questions which could be worked out pretty well in the legislature um, in a better functioning system of representation.
0: You, you know, I want to return very, very quick, back to the U.K. for just a moment, but— um... You know, one of the things that you talked about in your Huffington Post piece about this sort of the highly frenzied campaign that was almost driven more so by emotion than the facts, um, you know, it had some xenophobia in it had maybe some little racism in it. Do you worry that such feelings on a larger scale could could manifest here in the United States, what we saw in the, the U.K. coming up to the election?
1: Well, I think uh, I think they already have in some sense. Uh, many of the initiatives, again, just taking California as an example, some would say that uh, Proposition 8, which overturned the um, judicial decision accepting gay marriage, um, the proposition which overturned that might have, you know, on one count, been been an example of that. Um, Of course, that proposition was itself overturned by subsequent judicial action. So um, you know, there is that kind of, when it comes to fundamental rights of people, we do have a kind of backstop, and that's the judiciary. Um, nevertheless, I think there's real danger when these feelings kind of come out in the initiative process and, uh, you know, people get mobilized around them. It sort of gives legitimacy to, you know, views of which are not actually productive in a democratic society, xenophobic views that you mentioned, or even racist views, um, probably better if those things (laughs) remain um, um, politically incorrect to express. You know, if I wake up after some such initiative, say Prop 187 in California, which was uh, uh, in an earlier era targeting um, uh, um, immigrants, illegal uh, illegal immigrants, undocumented workers, if uh, I wake up after that and I see, wow, you know, that initiative passed, maybe a lot of people, it it might uh, encourage people to realize that many share their views. And might make it uh, sort of more feasible to express those things. So the initiative, in some sense, can help people update, um, you know, their uh, view of the society around them to see if others share their preferences. And sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes I think that's really bad and can be quite dangerous.
0: Speaking with University of Chicago professor Tom Ginsburg about direct democracy, you know, since the United States has dominated. Uh, primarily by a representative form of government, and I, and I do understand that, uh, which in my view is an oversimplification. Let the people decide. I guess in that context, does direct democracy serve as like an unwitting intrusion um, to our uh, otherwise representative form of government?
1: Well, um, you know, I think it again it arose historically as a kind of correction to our representative form of government, and you know, I suppose there might be room for it in you know, an ideal constitutional order. Um, You certainly need multiple channels of public participation in democratic life for democracy to function well. So I don't really have a problem with that, but I do think there are risks, real substantial risks, when it is used to replace representative democracy, which um, at the end of the day seems to be a system which in an ideal sense would allow the kind of tough trade-offs that democracies have to make every day. Now, I think one reason we're seeing a real surge in interest in direct democracy is that um, you know there's a real perception that legislatures are broken. I mean, one way to think about the Brexit vote and to think about the problems of our current moment is that our mechanism for legitimating public policy and legitimating our society is basically an 18th century mechanism. You elect some people periodically, they make some choices, and then you get a chance to elect them again. And in an era when people's lives are dominated by instant communication, you know, that's not a very satisfying mechanism. All over the world, we see that legislatures are not very well respected. Um, Currently, the U.S. Congress, I think, has its lowest popularity rating in many years. Um, And so I think that that's one reason we see this kind of urge towards more direct mechanisms of public participation. And, you know, I think we're still looking around for what's going to actually work well.
0: Well, well, um, I was going to ask you this later, but, I'll, I'll, but since you raised it, I'll get to it right now. Um, it's easy, in, I guess, in some regard to talk about, you know, the Brexit, Brexit results. But almost to the point that we overlook that, you know, there were actions or inaction by the EU that led to this fervor. We can can blame Boris or we can blame whomever, but uh, the EU did have a role in this, did they not? Well, I
1: do think that um, the EU's model of governance is basically um, not really grounded in that 18th century model of direct representation that I was mentioning before. It's something quite new that's emerged over the last few decades there. And one version, one way to characterize it would be to say instead of democracy, it's technocracy. It's a bunch of bureaucrats and technocrats who make decisions about all kinds of important things in the society, you know, level of pollution that's going to be allowed, what kind of goods can be sold where. Um, And those are basically faceless people to most uh, Britons and to most Europeans. And, um, you know, that might lead to sort of technically better governmental decisions, but it doesn't seem to lead to more legitimate government decisions. And this is indeed one of the problems, I think, in our moment, is that we, we don't really have a way of legitimating the kind of government that we that we need in a really complex, globalized world. Hmm. And that, of course, creates some pretty significant
0: risks. You now, let, uh, let me just follow up, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but you just raised something um, for me as, as you were giving your last answer. Doesn't it also raise, like, this larger question, uh, since you mentioned globalization, in that, um, in the, especially in, in, in developed countries, in the developed markets, whether—is it possible to have—really have, like, total democracy, national sovereignty, and integrated markets? I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible, but isn't that sort totally of the rub of what, what we're struggling with, at least in the, developed, in the developed world?
1: I think you're absolutely right. I don't think you can have everything all at once. If you're going to have integrated markets, that means you can be subjected to forces which are outside of the control of your local system of representation, and um, you know that sort of creates demand. I think for you know more technocratic form of governance, but at the same time, you know the advanced democracies are democracies. This is the way we've been governing ourselves for for centuries, in the case of the United States, and uh, you know decades in the case of most European countries, and. Uh, People are very reluctant to give that up, and nor should they be required to. So I think this is kind of the, exactly the question that we're, we're all struggling with now. How, in a democracy, do you, when you want certain goods, the benefits of open markets and such, you also want protection from the bads that come from globalization, which are many and significant. And, um, you know, the government doesn't seem to be able to provide those to the same extent that people um think. Now, I have to admit, though, I also think a little bit of this has to do with rhetoric, and rhetoric to some degree in the media, uh, but also among politicians who've kind of made um, government a bad word in recent decades. You know, there's really been a kind of war on government, um, to quote from the title of a recent book, um, that, you know, makes it seem, makes us forget, I think, all the things that government can do and has done for us. Um, and that you know, I wish that Public rhetoric was a little bit more in line with a realistic assessment of the costs and benefits that were of our current system.
0: You you, you raised uh, two thoughts in my mind um, when you, uh, you on your last point. I, re, I remember um, the uh, f- from 1981. Uh, I think I think it was Ronald Reagan's inaugural address when he said, you know, um, when he says government is the problem. Uh, and that's, that sort of really ushered in that rhetoric. I mean, others had done it prior, but so sort of Reagan sort of ushered it in, and it sort of became an ethos for some. And then I, I don't remember the elected official, but, but I, there is. I, it sounds like, I think it was er, Everett Dirksen, but I'm not sure. Don't hold me to this. But who is it that said, you know, government's the enemy until you need a friend?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, when you look around you. Um, you know in fact our lives are pervaded by government and government programs no one wants to get rid of social security no one wants to get rid of the interstate highway system no one uh, really wants to get rid of um, you know the uh, um, uh, national defense or the various other things that, that the government provides so it is essential and um, who doesn't yes, want yes, who doesn't yes.
0: want the government to inspect our water or our food yeah
1: <laughs> yeah right well some people don't but I think uh, I was reading a statistic the other day that um, the Clean Air Act, one of the greatest beneficiaries of the Clean Air Act are people in places like West Virginia mm-hmm. and coal coal areas, because um, what is done, it's cleaned up the air around them. Life expectancy has gone up by dramatically in those areas since the passage of the Clean Air Act in 1970, between three to five years on average. It's a tremendous achievement of government. Um, but, you know, again, it's somehow there's a gap between... The reality, I think, and people's perception.
0: You, you know, going back to direct democracy um, for a moment, I, I you know, it, it may maybe, and this sort of ties into to, to the uh, rhetoric about government, but it 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 seems that direct democracy really attacks what is central um, to representative. Uh, uh, form of government, which at least in theory has been compromised. Now I know we haven't done a lot of that with representative government as of late, but direct democracy really attacks that notion, does it not?
1: Well, I think so. It's uh, yeah, again, and um, you know, it's it's sort of what it's supposed to do. Now I think there might be a way to design a kind of mixed system where one would get the benefits of direct democracy without necessarily the costs. Um, there's a lot of things one could do to tweak the current system for those states that do have referenda and initiatives, uh, you know, if you're a country designing the national constitution today, there might be ways to design to make direct democracy that would be better than others. So one idea I mentioned is the idea that, uh, okay, you can have um, initiatives on important issues or referenda, as the British just did, but if the issue is really important, then you ought to require people to approve it not once, but twice, so that the British, you know, having now woken up after the after that vote, and I think, you know, if they were to hold it again next week, I bet it would not pass. I bet it would not pass. It might be close, but I think there's been a lot of public discourse and maybe even some significant regret about the consequence of that decision. I mean, they woke up, and they're 8% poorer because their money is. Right. <laughs> the British pound has fallen. So, um, you know, I think for big decisions there ought to be this cooling off period. Uh, the initial vote would be perhaps advisory, and the second one would be confirming it. Now, another um, thing one might do is to make initiatives or referenda uh, temporary so that, you know, the people pass the, pass the law, they make a new law, but that law would expire after a certain amount of time. So you can imagine something like, um, I don't know, the California so initiative. So Prop 8, how went, about Prop 8?
0: When yeah, it passed. Prop 8,
1: exactly. So, okay, we're going we're gonna to make a, a gay marriage illegal for another, uh, you know, five-year period. And then in five years, we'll have to have another vote, and maybe people will confirm that. But it might be that they now learned. We've seen, obviously, tremendously quick movement uh, in the country on that issue, and it might be that five years later that that proposition would not have passed because people would have recognized that it wasn't uh, as dangerous as it could
0: be. Would you, would you also, um, in, in your list of uh, suggestions, would you also consider raising the threshold for victory, maybe 60 percent or two-thirds? Uh, maybe Would you raise that bar a little higher?
1: Yes, you could do that, obviously. And, uh, again, you could calibrate the um, level of um, the threshold to the importance of the issue. So if the issue is, let's say, an ordinary tax increase or something like that or a bond issue, maybe that would be majority. Uh, if the issue is something where you're talking about people's fundamental rights as Proposition 8, well, then you'd want it to be higher. Um, so, you know, in an ideal world, we'd be able to design things that way, getting the threshold to be uh, sort of equivalent to the importance of the issue. Something like you, leaving the European Union, one might have thought might have deserved a higher threshold. On the other hand, I do have to note that when they passed a referendum in the early 1970s... In
0: 72, joined right. ...joined the
1: European Union, yeah, they, it, was, uh, it was also a majority... Situation. Right. So I think you do have to make sure those two things are equivalent.
0: Right. Yeah. No. I, I think I think they um, they ham- they hamstrung themselves on that one because it was it was only a majority to get in, so it should be a majority to get out. But but we're speaking in larger theoretical terms here. That's that's the. Yeah. What do you say to those um, that that sort of really uh, forcefully suggest that direct democracy truly represents the, the will of the people?
1: Well, I think, you know, it obviously does represent the will of the people, but which people, for how long, at which moment? Um, You know, I think that some of the critics of direct democracy have pointed out several things. Who is formulating the proposals? Who's actually showing up to vote? How many people, how much time have people invested in the decision? You know, you could pass a law that, you know, it's called the Motherhood and Apple Pie Act, and, you know, 50 percent of people would vote for that without reading the, you know, the devil is always in the details in these proposals if it's a well-drafted one. Um, so, again, direct democracy invites that kind of manipulation. We've had two kinds of problems here in California. Sometimes it's uh, interest groups that are getting the, their um, benefits sort of buried in the weeds of these initiatives, and at other times it's initiatives that are drafted by sort of ordinary citizens. And, of course, our you know volume of law that we already have on the books is extremely complicated and large, And any initiative to be effective, any new law to be effective, has to fit in to that existing corpus of legislation. And so it does require some technical knowledge. Um, So, you know, I guess, again, I think that there's there's a nice impulse here. What do the people really think? You know, that's wonderful. That's an aspiration that democracies have always sought to reflect in public policy. Um, At the same time, in a complicated world, the more complicated the world is, I think the the less of a case there is for making those momentary decisions of the public permanently binding on everybody and their successors.
0: Well, one of the one of the um, uh, aspects that proponents of direct democracy always say is that it uh, reduces uh, the possibility for corruption. Does it?
1: Well, it's interesting. There is some there are some older studies which show that um, states which have direct democracy. Do have lower amounts of public spending, and one theory of that is that there's less sort of pork barrel stuff going through the legislature. So even though you can get some pork barrel legislation through direct democracy, it might be a little harder. Um, of course, the other side of that is that in direct democracy, one of the patterns we see, and one of the things the critics point out in states like California, is that voters are happy to vote for, um, you know, various goods that they want, various things, but they're not happy to vote for the tax increases to pay for it. So you might end up with a a smaller overall size of the state. That would be less pork barrel you know, goodies that are going out there. But it also might be less investment in the public goods, which are necessary to make our country great. It's hard to know. Um, But we do observe sort of much lower levels of spending in these states, which have direct democracy.
0: Now, um, if you were king for a day, would you require – that um direct democracies if there's say San in California where you are right now and and um we're going to have um every kid um 6th grade and below is going to get a new uh Apple Mac Air hmm. all right that passes overwhelmingly should it also be required to to say okay and to do that we're going to charge a penny on gasoline. Should, should, should it be a requirement to, to, to line out how you're going to fund that proposal?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the initiatives and referenda in the past in California have used that mechanism where they'll specify a particular you know, um, earmarking of funds for a particular purpose. And, you know, that's all well and good. But, again, at the end of the day, you've got to put all this stuff together. There has to be a single-state budget, and there has to be some money that's left over for everything else. Um, You know, it parallels the problem at the federal level where so much of the budget is now um, um, limited and dedicated to entitlement spending that uh, there's not that much discretionary spending in there, which is what's useful for responding to particular social problems that arise suddenly. In California, one of the problems with the earmarked spending that's been produced by all of the um, direct democracy is that there's not that much money left for, let's say, the schools, uh, which have been in major funding crisis for a couple of decades now. The university system isn't getting much public in- investment. And that's because, you know, the voters sure would like schools and a good university, but eh, they don't want to have to pay for it through the general revenue. And I suppose that the people who run the university and the school system haven't been able to um, effectively uh, mobilize direct democracy in their favor. But again, government involves trade offs, and at some point you've got to balance the books and make those trade- tough choices and be accountable for it.
0: You know, I, I wonder but just um, in this conversation, uh, do you worry? Because you, you, you mentioned earlier about some of our rhetoric about blaming government. Do, do you worry? Is, is is direct democracy a tool that allows um, the elected official to do uh, to not do what he what he or she dreads the most, which is to make a tough decision?
1: I think that's exactly one of the temptations that arises when you have the possibility of direct democracy. In California, again, just to use the example we've been talking about, You can um, uh, initiatives can, can come on the ballot several ways. I mean, it can be a public initiative. Um, there's also referenda that are put on the ballot by the legislature itself, and that, of course, invites, uh, invites punting of tough questions. Now, it would be nice if we had a mechanism whereby the legislature could sort of get instant feedback on what the preferences of the voters are at that time. Um, and maybe we ought to be designing one, some kind of, you know, online sort of ballot box or preference expression mechanism. Seems like it ought to be technically possible. Um, but, um, you know, it's, but to, to, the problem with letting the voters make the final decision is that it just invites that kind of hunting of the tough questions.
0: Finally, um, is there a way – is there a link – between, let's say, the growing frustration that a number of people have—obviously, we just saw it in the UK—we see it here uh on, on another level. And during this presidential campaign, is there a link between that frustration, money, and politics? The inability to the the, the, the dominance that incumbents have—are are those things linked? Or maybe some other things that I'm leaving out of that question? But are, are all those things linked in some way, in your opinion?
1: Well, it's interesting. There is a sense. People are angry. There's no question about that. And they're angry. It's hard to know what they're angry about. We have pundits who are saying, oh, yes, people are upset about inequality. People are upset about, you know, losing control over things going on in their lives. Uh, Different populations are upset about particular issues they face. So there is this great sense of anxiety and anger out there among the public. And I think, you know, that's what... uh, Legislators are for, in some senses, to, to uh, blame for some of your troubles that, that, that arise. Um, there's a great sense of disaffection from the political system. And historically, you know, when we see that, usually good things don't result. Uh, you know, there's always the temptation of going for someone who's gonna be, who claims to be uh, able to rescue you without any real concrete plans. Um, you know, there's always the temptation to blame the other, blame outsiders for your problems. Um, there's really severe problems, I think, with inequality, which a lot of people are talking about in this country, but um, we haven't seen much responsiveness in the political system to really address other than the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, So, you know, I do think we're at a very interesting inflection point in terms of where we're going to go. Are we going to address some of these issues? Are we going to try to build a society where people really feel like they have some ownership? Or are we going to swing in the direction of... uh, you know, dangerous populism. And I really don't know. I can't see the future. not sure which way it's going to go. Uh, But it definitely seems like these issues are are very much alive, and direct democracy, properly structured, might be
0: part of the solution,
1: but it also could be part of the problem if it's not uh, thought about very carefully and very carefully designed.
0: Well, Dr. Tom Ginsburg, I want to thank you uh, for taking your time and being on the public morality today. It was an honor to have you on, sir.
1: I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Byron. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
0: That was Professor Tom Ginsburg. Coming up, Dr. Robert Scott will join us to discuss the impact the United Kingdom vote had on globalization. As you might imagine, political pundits from every stripe, myself included, have taken turns to offer their thoughts on what the United Kingdom's vote to leave the EU might mean going forward. One of the most interesting articles that I read was offered by Dr. Robert Scott, entitled The End of Globalization as We Know It. Scott is a senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., and I am happy to have him on The Public Morality. Dr. Scott, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. You recently wrote, quote, the British vote to leave the European Union is a watershed event, one that marks the end uh, of an era of globalization driven by deregulation and the ceding power over trade and regulation in international institutions like the EU and the World Trade Organization. Explain uh, why you feel so strongly in light that there's still so much unknown in this current um, UK-EU process.
2: Well, I think the, uh, what was shocking was that uh, there was such a strong vote in favor of 52 percent of the voters in in Britain, favored uh, Brexit. Now uh, we know there were certain areas of of, uh, of the UK where there were much stronger votes in favor of staying in the EU. Areas like Scotland and Northern Ireland. So that means the vote against was even larger, even even more negative in the core of England itself. Uh, so, and I think that reflects the fact that there are large numbers of people who have just not benefited uh, from globalization. Uh, uh, over the past three decades that's true not uh, just in britain it's also true uh, in the united states and increasingly i think it is true in europe so that's why i think that this is in fact a watershed moment because there's a growing recognition on the part of the public uh that these deals just aren't uh delivering the trickle-down benefits that, that have been claimed by uh, uh, economists or the experts or the, the technocrats that run uh the uh the uh, european union the most part in brussels
0: uh do you foresee uh a potential uh domino effect here well, I, I think it, it, it's. Uh,
2: I think there's a similar movement going on around the world, uh, at least the developed world. Uh, in the United States, uh, we've seen a, a strong upsurge in support for uh, Donald Trump, who's got a very aggressive message on trade. Uh, likewise, we saw that Bernie Sanders uh, uh, was able to uh, put together a really amazing campaign, uh, which attracted a lot of uh, young people and um, people who hadn't been part of the political process, and and a an opposition to globalization as we know it was part of that campaign and uh, so if you if you add those voters together it it, it uh, adds up to at least a significant minority if not a majority of the potential voting
0: public what if anything at this point because um, there's still negotiations um, um ahead of the uk and eu uh, what could the eu do to offset uh, where wh- which way the uk is headed right now if anything
2: Well, the the negotiations with the EU are going to take at least two years. Uh, First of all, uh, Britain hasn't even publicly and officially notified the EU that it wishes to uh, withdraw under the terms of uh, the Treaty of Lisbon. There's a clause, I think it's Clause 58, that they have to actually trigger uh, before they can begin that process. And then it will take two years to decide how they're going to take apart uh, their association. And the EU has a lot of choices, Uh, there are many different uh, models uh, out there in terms of how they. They can handle trade and more importantly, how they can handle immigration uh, in uh, the system. Uh, but I think it's clear that if, uh, uh, if the UK goes ahead with its uh, decision to exit from the EU, then it, there will be substantial costs uh, to Britain. Uh, they'll, for example, lose the subsidies they're getting from the European Union, uh, they go to many of the, lower, uh, of the low-income areas within the Union.
0: Explain to uh, to, our, to our listeners, if you will, you know, because this is something you sort of touched on just a few moments ago. You know how the how some of the recent trade agreements um, in the age of globalization invariably benefit countries that uh, have low wage workers, but at the same time, in the more developed nations, you let's take NAFTA for example. You still have a number of economists who will tout that the overall benefit of NAFTA has been a net plus. Can can you talk about those two disparities, if you would? Well,
2: uh, let's start with the second one. Uh, I think that the belief that NAFTA has been a net plus plus is really – almost a a statement of uh, of dogma, of religious principle within the economics profession, the belief that uh, uh, trade is a good thing, that uh, we all specialize in the production of goods, which uh, we have comparative uh, advantage in producing. Uh, The reality, however, is that globalization has uh, resulted in the downward pressure on wages of most working people. Uh, not just manufacturing workers who directly lose jobs, but everybody who has a similar set of skills. We're talking here about essentially everyone uh, who doesn't have a college degree. In the United States, that's about 100 million workers or roughly two-thirds of the labor force. And My colleague Josh Bivens has calculated that in the last 20 years, globalization with countries like China and Mexico and other low-wage nations has reduced the wages of the median wage, uh, non-college educated worker by about $1,800 a year. It's hard to think of another single thing that has had that kind of a net negative impact. And that's after taking into account of the benefits of cheaper imports from China or, or Mexico. So uh, most workers have suffered a net loss. All of the benefits have been captured by those in the top third, and mostly in the top 10 and the top 1 percent of the income distribution. So if there has been net benefit, it has all gone to the few and not to the many. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, and obviously, uh, so could we then conclude that um, in countries that, that do pay low-wage workers, there is a benefit for them in these trade agreements?
2: Well, it hasn't worked out that way. Okay. Take, for example, Mexico. You would think Mexico has gained from NAFTA. It's certainly true they have gained some manufacturing jobs. Employment in the auto sector has gone up uh, substantially uh, from about 100000 120000 to over half a million. Uh, they've got more jobs, but those workers are being paid terribly low wages, and they've lost millions of other jobs uh, in sectors like uh, uh, traditional agriculture uh, that have been very uh, disruptive to the economy. So in fact, if you look at how Mexican workers are doing relative to workers in Mexico, there has been no narrowing of the gap whatsoever between average wages in Mexico and average wages in the U.S. So workers in the U.S. are not doing better. Workers in Mexico have not caught up. So where are the benefits? And as my uh, founder of my institute, Jeff Foe, uh Put it in his book uh, about on NAFTA, which he called the global class war. This is, NAFTA was really an agreement amongst the wealthy in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Uh, it's an agreement that benefited the wealthy and the powerful and the big corporations in all three corporations, all three countries. And those benefits have not tripl- trickled down anywhere uh, to workers uh, throughout the the, the hemisphere.
0: You, you know, when I go back, um, you you um, talked about. Um uh, NAFTA, for example, is when we pulled out being, um, whether it being a net plus or sort of the economic dogma. Uh, isn't that dogma and, and to some degree um, the genie out of the bottle, or, or, or do, we, do we see with this last um, the U, uh, UK vote that maybe that narrative is changing?
2: I think the narrative is changing. I, 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 in my piece, I quoted uh, the economist Larry Summers, who used to be the uh, Treasury Secretary um, uh, for the Clinton administration, and, and he, as he said... Uh, you know, the challenge now is to develop a responsible nationalism for approaches to policy to privilege local interests and local people over what he calls more cosmopolitan concerns. He's talking there about, you know, the, those who would favor
0: more just free trade uh,
2: uh, for all.
0: Now, um, it's just going back to the uh, UK uh, referendum vote, yes, um, wasn't um. Didn't the Remain side in, in some ways put themselves in a conundrum in, in, in that some of their arguments to stay—I'm talking, I'm talking about the, at least the leadership—some of their mm-hmm. arguments to stay weren't, in, in effect, fueling the, the frustration and justification to leave?
2: I think that's true, and I, and I think uh, you know, you have to look at who was uh, at the, uh, at the uh, conservatives in, in Britain, the, 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 the Tories. You know, they have been promoting an agenda of austerity. They've been slashing uh, government spending and taxation, and that's been hurting working people. So they've been making conditions worse for those who've been hardest hit. By globalization, so in, in many ways, in, in, with their real policy actions, uh, they have they have compounded the problem, and I think that is at the deepest level uh, where some of the conflict arises.
0: Earlier um, in the broadcast, we had Professor Tom Ginsburg from the University of Chicago, and I'm going to pose the same question to you that I posed to him. Um, is it have we have do we have to have, is it a day of reckoning? Are we close that it's impossible to have total democracy along with national sovereignty and expect completely integrated markets in any real and authentic way?
2: Well, I think that we—that's almost uh, an impossible goal. Uh, the, uh, the economist uh, Danny Roderick has uh, posed this as what he calls a trilemma. He says that you can have at most two of the three things that you just talked about: unlimited globalization, uh, and uh, uh, truly uh, democratic governance, and uh, you know, uh, a deregulated market. So it's. It's uh, it's it's. I think that the 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 hope that you can have all three of those things at once is just uh, it, it can't work in in the, the system that we have today.
0: Hmm. In, in a few minutes we have left. I'm, 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 uh, specific to the European Union. Mm-hmm. In, in, in retrospect, I guess historically, were, were they, and given some of the things you've already touched on on globalization and its challenges, were they guilty also of overextension? And I'm thinking some of the recent countries were they just some of those recent countries, practically all of them. Were countries that that had a plethora of low wage workers. Was it over part of the overextension as well? I think it was
2: certainly overextension, both in the in the decision to expand the EU, uh, and that was a decision reached with uh, together with the leaders of the United States and all of the countries in in Europe. I think there was also um, a huge overextension in the decision to move to a single currency i think that was the fundamental flaw uh now of course britain did decided to opt out of that so it wasn't subject to that problem but uh it created a, a core set of problems within the european union they created a common currency uh but they didn't have a, a central uh, common banking system or a common fiscal policy so they had no way to respond to the normal ebbs and flows of the economy. So uh, when the crisis hit, and the economic crisis hit in 2008, there were no tools available to increase spending on a region-wide basis, and unfortunately, there were too many differences between countries within the European Union uh, to to sustain... Spending where it was needed. The, the you know the Germans have maintained a relatively uh, high uh, productive, highly productive economy. They have relatively low un- unemployment. They're the com- uh, the country with all the wealth. They are the country that should have engaged in all the spending needed to pull the rest of uh, Europe out of its recession. Uh, instead, they have responded by trying to blame people in other countries for being profligate, for being uh, uh, engaging in wasteful spending and borrowing, and and that's uh, you know that reflects the fact they just don't have a common uh, set of government institutions and a common outlook on what's good for Europe as a whole, as opposed to what's good for. Countries like Germany uh, alone.
0: And now, the way you just articulated that—that that actually sounds like a, uh, a recipe for disaster. If you're going to have a single currency and not have those kind of governing mechanisms, you just outlined.
2: Absolutely, it was a it, it, the the European Union was flawed from the outset. Once they decided they committed to having a common currency uh, in uh, 1992, uh, the Maastricht Treaty. That was the that was the moment at which the you know, the, the institution uh, failed itself.
0: Um. And, and finally, I guess in a, in a macro context, are there, what are the lessons from this, this U.K. experience that uh, we might grasp here in the United States?
2: Well, I think the U.S. and the, and the U.K. and uh, the rest of Europe really face a common set of problems. We're all struggling with slow growth. We're all struggling with dysfunctional uh, public sectors. Uh, that are unable to organize themselves to uh, engage in a kind of public policies that are needed to help the economy recover. Here in the United States, we're locked in a death struggle between uh, Congress and the White House has presented, prevented us from engaging in any kind of cooperative uh, government spending plan. We desperately need hundreds of billions of dollars of spending on infrastructure and clean energy. Uh, these are things that can put people back to work, uh, create uh, good jobs uh, and lower unemployment, uh, and uh, can create rising wages, and yet uh, we can't seem to make that happen. I think obviously the same thing is true in, in, uh, in the EU, and I think the, the, you know, in the UK they're stuck with uh, the Tory party, which is, again, is following similar policies. So I think in all three areas uh, we're dealing with stagnation because of the failure of government to, um, to live up to its obligations.
0: Well, finally, you talked about earlier, you, you mentioned uh, Donald Trump on one side, uh, Bernie Sanders on the other side, and both how they've approached um uh globalization and and trade agreements um have we had in your opinion sir a, a honest discussion about trade i mean are we, are we just is it emotionally driven are we are we having an honest discussion about trade
2: i don't think we're having a uh a deeply interesting fundamental discussion about trade and how to move ahead. We have a lot of finger-pointing, but we don't have anybody who's talking, I think, uh, creatively about answers that will work, that will help, uh, help us to harness the, the globalization in ways that will uh, help working people rather than hurting them and I think that's where we need to move and unfortunately the, the the you know the political debate we're having in the election is not moving in that direction. Uh, so um, you know we have a lot of shouting but not a lot of intelligent conversation.
0: Would some of that be um, the things you proposed earlier um, infrastructure because those you no know, those things cost money. And so
2: Absolutely. <laughs> and and there has never been a time in our and certainly in my life uh and I'm <laughs> got a few years on me, and really since since probably the uh, Great Recession. There's never been a time when it has been cheaper uh, for the United States to borrow money to invest in infrastructure, nor has there been a time when we had a greater need uh, to rebuild not just our roads and highways and bridges and airports, but our uh, our railroads and our uh, Sewage treatment systems and our water supply systems, and to get the lead out of water and to get the the sewage out of the of our rivers and so on. I, you know, huge huge needs for those things, and it could could put millions of people back to work uh, in good jobs with good wages. So. I think there's clearly a need, and we, we have we're we, we are literally throwing away an opportunity here.
0: I don't want to. I don't want to make you a political analyst, but I mean, some of the things you just said to me just seem like common sense things. I'm wondering um, why we, we. It's almost what a decade that we've been having this conversation. I mean, yes, I'm... it's
2: been going on since 2007, 2008. Yeah, we're almost a decade into the to the uh, you know post Great Recession era.
0: Well, um, we will certainly um, have you back, sir. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, hopefully, not not within ten years, and still having the same conversation. <laughs> but, yeah, I agree. But Dr. Robert Scott, I want to thank you for being on the public rally today. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Robert Scott of the Economic Policy Institute. Coming up, my closing remarks. closing remarks. It was one of those events where one knows prior that it could become a reality, but is shocked nevertheless when it actually occurs. Based on the post-election upheaval, many throughout the world, upon learning that the people of the United Kingdom had voted to leave the European Union, shared those feelings. The vote to leave reflected a strange coalition of economic uncertainty, nativism, and racism fortified by reactionary urges where facts were a subordinate consideration. Frankly, this is a moment where the questions are far more important than the answers. So as the UK and the EU enter into the murky unknown as the rest of the world watches anxiously on the sidelines, allow me to pose several questions for your consideration. What will the next prime minister do? The Leave campaign made a number of promises about the Shangri-La that was just over the horizon if they possessed the courage, or in this case, the anger, to vote to exit the EU. Now that Prime Minister David Cameron has resigned and reality has set in, some of those grandiose promises are already non-starters. And will the next Prime Minister take into consideration the 48.1% that voted to stay in the EU? Or are their desires merely inconsequential? Second, what does the vote say about the EU and globalization? What began as six European countries dedicated to peace and prosperity shortly following World War II is currently 28 member states at varying stages of economic vitality. Setting aside momentarily the UK decision to leave, the EU must still contend with the Greek debt crisis, migration and refugee crisis, a resurgent Russia, along with the terrorist threat, Moreover, it is impossible to have total democracy along with national sovereignty and expect completely integrated markets. That has been the fanciful notion that globalization, particularly in developed nations, has pursued for far too long. And finally, what message does the U.K. referendum send to the presumptive presidential nominees Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, along with their supporters? Will Clinton take the role of Prime Minister Cameron by telling a frustrated electorate to stay the course with little else to offer? Or will Trump realize 270 electoral votes by simply titillating emotions advocating for the unrealistic? As for the referendum itself, the argument could be made that the Remain side became the unwilling allies of the Leave side by putting forth rationale that justified their frustrations. But frustration is hardly a justification to drive off the cliff simply because the road is bumpy. Only time will tell what the referendum actually accomplished and what lessons, if any, will a frustrated American electorate learn from this kerfuffle. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.